So tonight, I'll be preaching from Psalm 119, and this section will be verses 73 to 80. 73 to 80, the title of the sermon tonight is God's Faithfulness in Affliction. God's Faithfulness in Affliction. So again, if you can, turn to Psalm 119, and when you get there, if, you can, if you're able to stand, we'll read God's Word together. Again, it's verses 73 to 80. The psalmist writes, Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding so that I can learn your commands. Those who fear you will see me and rejoice, for I put my hope in your word. I know, Lord, that your judgments are just and that you have afflicted me fairly. May your faithful love comfort me as you promised your servant. May your compassion come to me so that I may live, for your instruction is my delight. Let the arrogant be put to shame for slandering me with lies. I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you, those who know your decrees, turn to me. May my heart be blameless regarding your statutes so that I will not be put to shame. Let us pray. Father, God of all mercies, God of heaven and earth, we come to you tonight, Lord seeking your wisdom, seeking understanding so that we can understand about the afflictions and sufferings that we go through. We all have our trials that you have brought into our lives. We know your word says that it's for our good because you're making us like Christ. But it's still hard, God. And Lord, so I pray tonight that as we go through your word, we can understand that you afflict us in faithfulness. You afflict us in faithful love. Help us understand that is the path that Christ took. And we all follow in his footsteps because we are your children. So Lord, please be with me tonight as I preach your word. Help us be united as one in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> one of the greatest challenges or struggles that we have as Christians and non-Christians alike is understanding the purpose in suffering. Do we suffer as a natural consequence for poor decisions and or bad behavior? Now, the Bible does teach the principle of reaping what we sow. But some might call it just mere cause and effect. Or from the Eastern world, they call it karma. What you do, good or evil, will come back to you. But those philosophies lack intentionality and purpose. Some say that we face trials to make us better people, make us stronger and wiser in life. And that is true. Adversity can produce those characteristics. But why do we see it that way? Why do we see that afflictions, trials, and tribulations, according to the natural world, have intentionality, excuse me, intentionality in forging an improved humanity? Well, we see it that way because the alternative is unpalatable. There is no purpose. There is no purpose. Some are lucky, some are not. Even if we attribute affliction to cause and effect, it doesn't explain the why. 
And that is just hopeless. But if we see purpose and intentionality behind the affliction, then we have hope. You see, the the world wants to believe that human suffering is not in vain. But the reality is, if there is no God who is in control of human suffering and affliction, then there is no purpose, no hope, no way to understand why affliction happens to us, thus our suffering is in vain. And this is especially important for the Christian who has been called to a life of suffering, walking in the path of our Savior to glory. The scriptures show us a God who doesn't waver from his promises. He is faithful to what he says, and therefore we can have hope and can place our faith and trust in God, who is in control of all things. We can affirm, as these passages teach us, that God is faithful in affliction. That God is faithful in affliction. Verse 73, David writes, Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding so that I can learn your commands. So the psalmist here opens up this section by taking us back to Genesis 2-7, which reads, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Man being given the breath of life, making him a living being, living being, excuse me, shows that he is not like the animals. The breath of life is the soul of man, which makes him in God's image, having understanding and reason in the likeness of God. God made man to know and understand the ways of God. In referring to God as creator, the psalmist is confessing his absolute dependence on Yahweh. And in his dependence on God, as a creature having been made and formed, he also depends on God to give him understanding so that he can learn his commands. He asks for understanding so that he can learn his commands. It is interesting how he words this phrase. He doesn't say, teach me your commands. Rather, he asks for understanding so he can learn his commands. Or as one translation has put it, put thinking into my heart. He asks God to put thinking into my heart. What does that mean? We observed throughout Psalm 119 that the psalmist depends on the mercy and grace of God to obey his commands. In verse 18, the psalmist asks God to open his eyes to contemplate his instruction. Verse 27, he says, help me understand the meaning of your precepts. Verse 35, he writes, help me stay on the path of your commands. In verse 26, he says, turn my heart to your decrees. Turn my heart to your decrees. So here, as the psalmist is going through affliction at the hands of the Lord, he wants God to put thinking into his heart so that he can learn his commands. David knows God's commands. Many know God's commands, but so many haven't learned God's commands. The Pharisees knew God's commands and outwardly were the exemplary ones living according to the law. While they practiced them, and we know many who practiced God's commands, they hadn't learned them. The rich young ruler practiced God's commands, but when Jesus tried to give him understanding, he walked away. What we have seen in this psalm and throughout scripture is that affliction, suffering, and trials are the ways in which one learns God's commands. And for many, affliction 
exposes that they don't know and understand God's commands. Instead, they question God, becoming angry with him because their view of God was attached to their own experience of happiness. Here's the reality, writes Paul Tripp. Quote, most people who are not angry, who are angry with God, are angry with him for being God. They're not angry because he has failed to deliver what he promised. They're angry because he has failed to deliver what they have craved, expected, or demanded. We all struggle with this, do we not? We tend to determine God's goodness and faithfulness through situational outcomes that appease the flesh rather than afflict the flesh. The revolutionary idea we need to grasp that God's affliction is good. We struggle to see this because mankind is in a state of blindness. So to understand this truth, it will take what David asks of God, that he put learning into his heart so that he can understand God's ways. We need God's learning into our hearts so we can understand his ways. And that understanding, church, produces hope. In which we read in verse 74, David says, Those who fear you will see me and rejoice, for I put my hope in your word. See, many mistakenly see that if someone is suffering the judgments from God, it means he has lost God's favor and he has fallen from grace. But in gaining understanding of God's commands, those who fear God will see David and rejoice because he has put hope in God's word. One of the greatest means of refreshing the hearts of God's servants is learning of those who have suffered according to God's will while having expressed great hope peace, and trust in God. Christian biographies are very powerful antidotes for faint-hearted believers. They move us to a faithful zeal because of the solidarity we feel with the obedient soldiers of Christ who have gone before us as they followed our Savior on the path he took to glory, enduring in their fate to the end, and receiving the crown promised to them. Martin Luther, the reformer, reflects on this manner of thought, saying, When we see the martyrs in pains, do we not in a wonderful manner rejoice over their agonies, their crowns, and their triumphs? And anyone who bears the judgment of the cross of Christ, in some way we declare blessed, and we teach and know that they rejoice in tribulations. You see, a Christian death is purposed to glorify God. At the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, verses 18 to 19, Jesus tells Peter that toward the end of his life, he will be carried away by others to where he does not want to go. And then John writes this parenthetical prophetical statement to explain what Jesus meant. He says, quote, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus explains that Peter will not want to go to his death. Of course, our flesh does not want to die. The flesh wants this world. But death here marks the end of the flesh. Our physical death is the moment when our bodies of death, as Paul says, are finally crucified, which is why the death of the flesh glorifies God. In David's day, other God-fearers that see him endure affliction with a strong, hopeful spirit rejoice because they know, they know it is only God who can make a man hope and trust in his promise while living under this affliction. 
this discipline, rather. That is what we do with our children when we discipline them. Our children hopefully, hopefully know that while their discipline is painful, they hopefully know that we administer it for their good with open arms, immediately following the rod of correction to assure them of our love for them. The discipline we give them is intended to turn their hearts to the ways of the Lord that we are trying to instill in them. And by God's grace, we hope that our children turn to the Lord, seeing that their sin is against him. And thus they see their need to repent and trust Christ. There's a learning lesson here. The sting of the rod is temporary, but it is a reminder that sin transgresses God and leads to eternal death, which is God's judgment of the sinner who despises the wisdom of correction and continues in a life of sin and lawlessness. And God does the same to us because we are his children. But why does he need to discipline us? Maybe you ask the question, why does he need to discipline us? Well, do you still sin? Do you still sin? A wise and caring father is supposed to discipline his children. And our Heavenly Father does the same to us because he is perfectly wise and caring. The author of Hebrews writes of the purpose of God's discipline. In chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, he says, For they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of earthly fathers. For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, the author of Hebrews shows us, according to the light of nature, that children ought to obey their parents and submit to them in all things. The other is from the light of grace, namely that there is a same real relation between God and us, God and believers. The intention in showing this relation between the two is to make the argument as as we are supposed to obey our earthly parents, how much more we ought to obey our Heavenly Father. What benefit is it for us? So that we can share His holiness. What is holiness for us? Holiness consists in the mortification, big word, mortification, or the putting to death, the lingering lusts and sinful passions of the flesh, whereby our natures undergo gradual renovation, and our souls are being sanctified, becoming more like Christ, thus more like God, and having the ultimate blessing of sharing in his holiness. And it was a long sentence. But the reality is there are many, too many sons that were never disciplined by their fathers, whose lives ultimately ended in ruin, the destruction of their souls. If God doesn't discipline us, our lives will end in ultimate Spiritual ruin. See, for us now, for us here and now, the sting of affliction is temporary. Let's hear Paul's words as a means of comfort for us when he writes, For our momentary light affliction, light affliction, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal 
weight of glory. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17 for you note taker. But for those who are children of wrath, their affliction is eternal. God's affliction is purpose for us to put our hope in him, in his word. David did that, and others who feared the Lord rejoiced in God's blessing upon him. And likewise, others who love God, our fellow believers in Christ, will see us abiding in him in our suffering and rejoice because of God's blessing upon us for hoping in him. The blessing of God, as we read in Hebrews 12, 11, is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The fruit, speaking of here, produced is patience, submission to God's will, weaning from the things of the world, mortification of sin, heavenly mindedness, purity of heart, and if so be it, readiness for the cross. And when these fruits are brought forth in us, they are evidence that God is at peace with us, and that by it we see that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In verse 75, David writes, I know, Lord, that your judgments are just and that you have afflicted me fairly. You see, the problem many have, especially those who hate God, abhor God, or angry at God, is they see his judgments as evils. Through their gnashing teeth, they put God on the dock. They blaspheme his name and cast judgment on him for what they perceive as unjust, unfair, and evil. But David has a different perspective. He sees that God's judgments are just and fair. And it's interesting how David puts it. When we look at it in the Hebrew, David in saying that God's judgments are just, literally is saying his judgments are righteousness. Righteousness. And there is nothing in his judgments that are not just and good. And also when he says God has afflicted me fairly, literally he is saying his afflictions were done in faithfulness. It was the very faithfulness of God that brought affliction to David. Now, the ESV does a better job in its rendering of this passage. It says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Another translation has the second clause stated as, You disciplined me because of your faithful devotion to me. You discipline me because of your faithful devotion to me. Is that not what we tell our kids when we discipline them? We do it because we love them. We are devoted to our children, and we do it because we love them. God is faithful to his own righteousness and justice, and he is faithful to us for the very same reasons. And David understands the afflictions God brings upon him are due to his unwavering character and holiness. And in trusting God's judgments and afflictions are fair, he also can look to his faithful love to comfort him. As you read in verse 76, David writes, May your faithful love comfort me as you promised your servant. This passage shows David's patience towards God and his understanding of God's goodness. Just as earthly fathers comfort their children after discipline, our heavenly Father comforts us after he disciplines us. God is faithful to his character and goodness in that, as one commentator writes, 
God's unfailing love caused God to send afflictions to the psalmist. Do you not discipline your kids because out of your unfailing love for them? That's why you do that. And God's unfailing love for us causes God to send afflictions to us. Think about that. God afflicts because God loves. God afflicts because God loves. He promises affliction, he promises faithful love, and he promises affliction in faithful love. God loves us in spite of and even through what suffering he brings upon us. In Psalm 25.10, David writes, All the Lord's ways, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. In this we know that abiding in the Lord's commands, which will bring many afflictions in fiery ordeals to test us, the path of affliction is carried out in faithful love. You see, if we are to share, if we are to share in the inheritance that Christ has, as we have been adopted, we are adopted children of God, if we are to share in that inheritance as Christ has, then we are to share in his sufferings. And sufferings for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, is the visible proof that we are children of God. Many years ago, I listened to a, a missionary give a, give a talk at a, at a Christian college. And this missionary had gone over to China and was introduced to uh, just a, a young family. And there was two girls that were new believers. I've kind of, I've shared this before. But for them, for them, what solidified them in their faith, what what helped them really see that God's word was true is that it said in there, in the text, that they would suffer persecutions for Christ's sake. And through their suffering, through actually physically suffering persecution, they had joy in Christ. Because they knew that God's word is true. They knew if he tells us our persecution and our suffering is going to happen, but he also says he's going to deliver us, this happened, so this will happen. And that was solidified their joy and their trust in Christ and his word. And it brought them peace. It brought them peace. In verse 77, David writes, May your compassion come to me so that I may live, for your instruction is my delight. Here David sees his need to be reconciled to God. You know, the Old Testament law was given so that people could live under God's covenant, being set apart from the nations. In Leviticus 18.5, the Lord tells Israel, If one is to live, one must keep his statutes and ordinances. But as we read in the New Testament, no one can live by the law. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he speaks to the difference between law and promise, stating that everyone who doesn't keep the law is cursed, and no one is justified before God by the law. And why is that? And Paul cites Habakkuk 2.4, a little small passage that is so powerful. Because the righteous will live by faith. You see, Paul was addressing the confusion going on in the Galatian churches, brought on by certain agitators who were pressuring the Gentile believers to keep the law. You see, the idea that, that one is justified apart from the law 
was hard to accept. They kept trying to push it back in on those who were following Christ. You've got to do this. You must be circumcised. You must do this. But in this passage in verse 77, we see two distinctives of the living of living by faith. God's compassion and a love for his word. Obviously, David lived under the old covenant. He was under the law. In Psalm 119.21, he explains that the arrogant ones are under God's curse, having wandered away from his commands. But wait a minute. Didn't David stray from God's commands? He did. So what is the difference between David and the arrogant? And it's very important that we understand this next piece. It's, It's huge. Here's the difference. David sought God with his whole heart, asking that God wouldn't let him wander from his commands. The arrogant didn't seek God, for they didn't see their need for his mercy and grace. They didn't want to know God. They want to live according to their own ways. Their hearts were hard and insensitive to the things of God. But David had a contrite heart. He had a heart in the likeness of God's heart, and a Godward heart knows the character of God. And because David knew the character of God, he understood that keeping God's commands is seeking God's mercy and grace to keep him from wandering away from his commands. Let me say that again. Keeping God's commands is seeking God's mercy and grace to keep him from wandering away from his commands. Did David fall short of the law's demands? Yes, he did. Yes, we all do. Thus, he could never be justified by the law. Rather, David lived by faith, trusting in the giver of the law. And the giver of the law is merciful, and that is what David seeks to be reconciled. God's mercy and grace as revealed to Israel in Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is what I'm talking about. Moses writes, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity and the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God reveals to his people that he is a merciful God. And David delights in God's word because of what it reveals about him. He has compassion for creatures. He has compassion for us humans. Martin Luther, commenting on this passage, writes, The law moves the understanding forward, whereas tender mercies move love forward. You see, the self-righteous never move forward in love because they don't see that love fulfills the law. And regarding the self-righteous and the arrogant, in verse 78, David prays to God asking, Let the arrogant be put to shame for slandering me with lies. I will meditate on your precepts. Psalm 119 is broken up into 22 sections, eight verses each. 
with each section heading marked by letter of the Hebrew alphabet, giving us 176 verses in this psalm. And the common request David makes in almost every section has to do with the wicked and arrogant foes who slander and smear him. David had many enemies, and his enemies endeavored to destroy him. They rejoiced in his misfortune. David's repeated prayers to God on the matter shows it was a constant burden he want removed. He wanted removed. But while he wants the Lord to bring down his enemies, which I'm sure he wants immediately, we see David's patience and trust in God. Think about it. It would be extremely difficult for a king to sit patiently waiting on the Lord to deal with his enemies. He's a king. He has military forces at his disposal. How easy would it be to take down an enemy with a mighty band of elite forces? David could give a head nod and have one of his soldiers slay someone for slinging insults at him. But David was not a tyrannical despot. He was submissive to the Lord's commands, so instead... He meditates on God's precepts. So what is the lesson for us all? God is the one who brings vengeance. While our enemies sing of triumph, the victory belongs to the Lord. And spiritually speaking, speaking excuse me, our sins in the trials we go through may appear to have victory over us. But we have a greater hope than what David experienced. In that death, Death, the true enemy, our Lord and Savior, destroyed. Sin and death have no power over us. In the end, Scripture says God will crush Satan under our feet. We will rejoice in true victory carried out by the powerful working of God. And the powerful working of God in one's heart produces a proper fear of the Lord. And to them, David says in verse 79, Let those who fear you, those who know your decrees, turn to me. Here David turns his prayers to other believers. God fears that they wouldn't lose hope, but rather be encouraged by God's faithfulness in David's afflictions. Think upon that. Think upon the afflictions that you have endured, from which the Lord has brought you from. Do you consider how he has been faithful in your afflictions? And the reality is, even when it's hard, you are still getting grace. We are still getting grace. It may not be the amount of grace we want in the moment. We want more of it. We want to be delivered from these things. But it's giving us grace. Why is it? And it's grace because he's disciplining us, because he loves us. To not give grace It was to let us go, to let us be handed over to the world, to spiral into spiritual destruction going after the things of the flesh. But his affliction to our flesh is the grace that he gives his children. And when God pulls you through those moments, those seasons, those times, you rejoice. And you rejoice when you see God pull others through it too. Likewise, David hopes they see that he has not fallen from God's good graces and promises. As mentioned in our examination of verse 74, the righteous can become disheartened when it seems the wicked prevail. But David's deliverance is instructive to the godly in that God's decrees 
prove true. And his experience of God's goodness in affliction means that those who fear God must learn from him. How encouraging is it to hear of somebody that's gone through severe persecution, affliction, and speak in joy about God, what he's done for them. It's so encouraging. Because if they can be taken through these trials, I'm talking extreme stuff. I'm talking torture. I'm talking imprisonment. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. They can be taken through those things and come out in delight in God, in his goodness. That is so encouraging to hear. The promises of God as found in his word are trustworthy. So in turning, again, speaking of those that fear God, in turning to David, they can rejoice in the goodness and faithfulness of God toward his people, even while he brings affliction to them. In our last passage this evening, verse 80, David writes, May my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, so that I will not be put to shame. In these last three verses, we saw three prayers. In verse 78, David was was praying for God to put the arrogant to shame. In verse 79, David was praying for other believers to be encouraged by his example. And in this verse, verse 80, David is praying for himself that he can live blamelessly before God. It is interesting to see how David makes his request. In this prayer, we see his desire to have a sound heart before God, but he shows he can only be blameless through God's illumination. Cleanness of heart must must be prayed for, not presumed. David is asking, he's asking for the Lord to govern his heart, which is the work of the Spirit. What is David doing here? He's revealing his weakness in his prayer to God for an an upright heart. But more importantly, he reveals a humble heart in his request, unlike the self-righteous and proud hypocrites. Scripture says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, David's posture before the Lord is godly, in that he, he recognizes that what he desires only comes from above. When was the last time you prayed to God for his spirit to give you righteous desires? That's what faith is. It's seeking those things from God. The spirit gives us holy and righteous desires, and at the same time, the spirit reveals to us that those desires only come from God and can only be fulfilled from the good grace of God. And therefore, David's heart is framed in proper obedience to the Lord. Thus, this is how one lives blameless before him. So unlike the proud and the arrogant, David will not be put to shame. And if we live in the same manner, in the language of Paul from 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Understanding that what we have received, we don't, sorry, understanding that what we have, we received. And we don't boast that what we have received is something from ourselves. Let me say that again. What we have, we received. And we don't boast that what we have received is something from ourselves. Then we are living blameless before our Lord. So this section of Psalm 119 demonstrates that the source of our affliction is God. God disciplines his children. 
So while we incur affliction because of our sin, the affliction we receive is from our Heavenly Father. And that may be hard for many to swallow. But again, what is the alternative? Affliction is purposeless. Suffering and affliction, unmetered by the wisdom of the Almighty God, leaves us in the non-personal hands of fate. When we discipline our children, we apply wisdom in our correction, do we not? We don't bring about discipline without purpose. We do it in love and for their good to keep them from a path of ruin, and God does the same for us. And therefore, no matter what affliction the Lord brings, we can trust that he does it in love. We can trust that he will deliver us from it, and we will delight in his word because he is faithful to his promises as revealed to us in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. But to those who are not God's people, to those that are proud and arrogant, they may be here tonight, that hear the things of the word of God, and they scoff at it. The reality is your heart is hardened, and you need Christ to soften. You need to repent and trust Christ. You need to see that the end for the ungodly, for the proud, for the arrogant, is only ruin. So if you're here tonight or you're listening online, I ask you to get right with God, to turn to him, to see that he is the source of goodness, that he is the source of righteousness, that he made you, he formed you, he made you to understand his ways, but his ways start through repentance. Let us pray.